0: Hello everybody, this is Volts for May 23rd, 2022. Volts podcast, Lauren Melodia and Christina Carlson on energy inflation and how to tame it. I'm your host, David Roberts. Americans are struggling with two related problems. One, there's general inflation, which means pretty much everything is expensive. And two, there's energy price inflation, which means that energy in particular, specifically oil and gas, is expensive. This has led some politicians, mainly Republicans and Joe Manchin, to propose a dual solution, cut back on government spending to tame inflation, and increase domestic oil and gas production to tame energy prices. This approach is wrongheaded and counterproductive on both counts. The reasons why are laid out in a new issue brief from the nonprofit Roosevelt Institute, the first in a series called All Economic Policy is Climate Policy. Which, hell yes. Lauren Melodia, Deputy Director of Macroeconomic Analysis at the Roosevelt Institute, and Christina Carlson, the Institute's Program Manager for Climate and Economic Transformation, argue that fossil fuel prices are inherently volatile and that volatility has serious macroeconomic effects. On the flip side, electricity prices, specifically renewable electricity prices, tend to be far more stable and manageable. It follows that government spending to build out clean energy infrastructure is itself anti-inflationary. It removes a source of price instability and replaces it with stability. This argument is my favorite kind. It put words to something that's been rattling around in my head for years. So I was excited to talk to Melodia and Carlson about the volatility of fossil fuels, why we've come to accept it as an inevitable fact of life and why we could, in fact, choose a different outcome. With no further ado, Lauren Melodia and Christina Carlson from the Roosevelt Institute. Welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us.
0: You have written this report about energy and inflation. It's one of my favorite kinds of reports in that after I read it, I was like, oh, well, duh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like of course, that's true. You know, but it like it's like it hadn't occurred to me before. So it's, it's one of those things where like just hearing it stated clearly I think is very eye-opening. So so let's walk through a little bit the pieces of it and then we'll get into what it means for policy. So to start with, something I found interesting and didn't really know, which is that these traditional measures of inflation—the sort of which which are gin to be sort of like bundles of products through which inflation is m- measured and tested—exclude energy. Typically, uh, energy is not is not included in them because energy is sort of inherently volatile and is swinging up and down all the time. And so, the idea I think is you know, if we include that, it's going to sort of obscure what we're trying to look at. So we'll set that aside and look at another bundle of products. And if they are going up, then it's real inflation. This is sort of uh, how things are typically done. But as you say, this can be somewhat misleading since energy price volatility plays a huge role in inflation and specifically is playing a huge role in current inflation so explain explain briefly sort of the role of energy prices in the inflation we are currently experiencing
1: sure absolutely i mean i think that there's two ways that they're at play despite the fact that you know the fed or certain macro analysts might not want to think about energy prices in the overall inflation rate one is simply that People spend a lot of money on energy. And so even if the core CPI, Consumer Price Index, or other indicators show that there's price stability, people are experiencing rising gasoline prices. And we've seen over the past year that really fuel the conversation around inflation
0: yeah, like consumers definitely don't hold energy as some separate <laughs> right. category, right? Like they experience it as inflation when the prices rise.
1: Exactly. So if we're talking about rising prices in society and trying to ground that conversation and connect with consumers, people who are consuming the media, you know, your constituents, these are the prices that people are going to be talking about. The other way that they really do influence kind of the overall economy is that. These energy price volatility, the changes in energy prices actually do have a huge impact on our economy overall, even if we don't want to be thinking about them when it comes to inflation. And that simply is because energy is foundational to business operations and household consumption. If there's a spike in gasoline prices or other energy prices, it is something that people just have to deal with. You know, you can't delay consuming energy, you have to pay the higher price. And it means that you're going to have less money to spend in other parts of the economy. So we've seen actually historically that 10 out of the last 12 economic recessions in the United States were actually preceded by a spike in crude oil prices, meaning that you've got this rise in prices there. uh, People have to pay it. They can't you know, pay for other things in the economy and it leads to kind of a, you know, a slowdown of economic growth.
0: I want to sort of put an exclamation point on this because I I feel like it's super important to understanding the rest of it is it's not like cars or bread or something where if the prices rise, you can buy less of it or switch to an alternate product. Energy is a non sort of non-negotiable. You have to heat your house. You have to run your business. So Rises in energy prices just mean you're spending more on energy, which automatically means you're spending less on other consumer categories.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the concepts we try to really highlight here is the concept of energy insecurity. Mm -hmm. When the price of energy rises and people just have to pay it, it means that they can't pay for other basic necessities, not to mention other things that fuel economic growth and productivity. You know, those other things where we've got people out there working, making those things to produce and sell to consumers who have disposable income to spend.
0: Right. And can you quantify sort of how big a role energy volatility is playing in the current inflation relative to, you know, we've seen all these other consumer goods rising in prices too. So is there some way of sort of dividing the responsibility?
1: Yeah. I mean, people are aware of, you know, gasoline prices rising a dollar or two in their communities the way that inflation is calculated is based on the change in price of an item, but it's weighted based on how much people spend on that item. Mm. So energy prices are one of the biggest ticket items for the average household. Um, the average household is spending roughly 11% of their annual budget on energy consumption. And so that gets weighted in the you know calculation of what inflation is. So, you know inflation the the number that we hear month monthly when the numbers come out is rather abstract, like last month it came in at eight point three percent over the past year right um, but we can attribute two point one percent of that to energy prices alone and and largely gasoline price increases
0: yeah, it says uh, you said in the report gasoline price increases specifically are responsible for seventy five percent of energy inflation so Gasoline is the big ticket here. And just, you know, aside from the economics of inflation, gasoline is also probably the single consumer price of which US consumers are most aware, (laughs) like most hyper aware. They see it advertised to them every day. So insofar as part of inflation is sort of the psychology of it, the consumer psychology of it, that is also a big piece. For sure. So, you say um, you lay out a couple of reasons why fossil fuels are not sort of accidentally volatile, but sort of intrinsically volatile. Could you lay those out in, insofar as this is not like a solvable problem? <laughs> <laughs> so, explain why, sort of, why fossil fuel, what is it about fossil fuels that make their sort of price uh, fluctuations kind of out of our hands?
2: Absolutely. I think you started that question with the. Exact takeaway. This problem is not solvable so long as we are continually reliant on fossil fuels. And that comes from a few things. I mean, the most obvious place to start is that these are hard to find hydrocarbons buried deep underground. They require significant investment in production up front. And they also happen to be located in different places around the world that sort of tie us into a default geopolitical. Web, Um, And as we can see right now with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, geopolitical conflict has a huge impact on our domestic oil prices. And that has been the case for a very long time, not just in current situations. And I think that's very well exemplified in that graph that we share where we show that 10 of the past 12 economic recessions are preceded by an oil spike. A lot of those oil spikes come from geopolitical conflict.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And beyond that, I mean, beyond just the fact that there's conflict in this international market, the fact that it is international and that we are one player in a much bigger market than we would be for other types of goods that we consume is another part of this volatility. I mean, when we are faced with situations like we are in now where international conflict is driving changes in our domestic prices We have very little ability to mitigate those supply chain blockages by boosting our own domestic production.
0: I wanted to ask about that specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, This, I think, is a lot of people's initial instinct or intuition, and not not just a lot of random people, but a lot (laughs) of members of Congress uh, uh, in, in both parties. This idea is like, if this international volatility, these international problems are causing oil prices to go up, it makes intuitive sense to people, I think, that if we just produce more of our own oil and gas, we will, to some degree, protect ourselves from that volatility. And that just turns out to be- Not the case. Very straightforwardly wrong. (laughs) So explain, (laughs) explain why.
2: Yeah, I think there's two things. I think one, I mean, even if we increase our domestic supply, The way that especially crude oil is priced is through an international sort of price cartel, which is OPEC. They have a strong price setting power and any changes that the U.S. makes will still be influenced by the prices that are coming from that organization.
0: Right. And if they want, you know, they want to set prices. And if the U.S. boosts its production such as to lower prices more than OPEC wants them lowered, OPEC is perfectly capable of dialing back production in other places. Exactly. To get the price they want. So, so
2: we can't, we can't beat them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. We're not, I mean, theoretically, there's some limit if we were a big enough producer, you know, if we had like 50% of the world's or 80% of the world's right. oil or something like that, like there's some size we could reach where we could have a bigger influence, but,
2: but we don't want that, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but A, we don't have it. And B probably couldn't get it. Even if we sort of maxed exactly. out. Exactly.
2: I mean, and the second reason, which is even in this imaginary world where the U S becomes the mega producer of crude oil, it's not going to help domestic consumers. Because our current domestic producers are very heavy exporters at the moment. Most of our domestic production is actually being exported. Even in times of elevated demand at home, even when we're having price crises at the pump in the U.S., we can't make oil companies choose to sell their product domestically, especially if there's a profit incentive for selling abroad. And that's exactly the case.
0: Yes, yeah, like taking care of like, oh, our people, our domestic people are suffering. <laughs> exactly. Let's divert some of our oil and take care of them. It's just not really a thought process that like your exon they get, execs. They get a
2: lot of undue patriotism put on them because <laughs> in these moments, <laughs> when this is really hitting the fan, we, we can see what where their priorities are. And this ties to the nature of fossil fuels again, which I think we contrast with renewables later on, is that these energy products are transportable overseas. Mm -hmm. The reason that they are exported so much is because we can and, you know, early on in when natural gas came online in the US, it was supposed to be the, you know, the solution to US energy independence. That was all well and good until liquefied natural gas happened.
0: Yes. I wanna I wanna lay this out a little bit because the conventional wisdom, and I think probably a lot of people still have this in their heads, I think, insofar as they're paying attention to energy. The conventional wisdom is yes, oil is this sort of perfectly fungible international market and and You know, the domestic supply is almost irrelevant to the prices, but natural gas is different. It's harder to transport. It's harder to send overseas. So insofar as we're boosting domestic production, we are satisfying domestic demand. Mm -hmm. But as you say in the report, the sort of growth of the liquid natural gas technology and industry means that more and more natural gas is starting to sort of mirror oil. Absolutely. In being international and international market.
2: Right. I think we can we can observe sort of similar skyrocketing trends in exports around the same time between liquefied natural gas and crude oil, which is when the crude oil export ban was lifted and during the time that liquefied natural gas technology was really coming online. And now we're at the point where we are the number one liquefied natural gas exporter in the world. <laughs> and we are actually exporting faster than domestic production at the moment.
0: Oh, wow. Which
2: is... Very concerning.
0: So wait, we're we're exporting more than we're producing.
2: Yeah, we have reserves, but we are exporting at a pace that is higher than our domestic production, and that is actually causing us to draw down inventories at this moment when we are really struggling to maintain our export commitments.
0: So then, this idea, because you know, there's a lot of Congress people who are real hot on the idea that building more lng terminals is the way like that's how we can get our freedom gas <laughs> <laughs> to to europe so they can you know stop using the autocrat gas and start using the freedom gas but that again like is just fundamentally mistakes how international markets work like the market is fluid once the lng is out there circulating in the natural gas market is just part of the gas market it's not marked You know, you don't have a little F on the freedom gas and a little A on the autocrat gas. It's just all becomes gas (laughs) that you buy on an open market.
2: Exactly. I mean, it's important to remind ourselves also when we play out these potential scenarios, if we invest further in our own fossil fuel dependence, even if the sake is to export freedom gas, we are now further entrenching ourselves to our vulnerability to price fluctuations from gasoline, which are still not going anywhere, is just further and further entrenched. The more infrastructure we bring online, the more we are tied to international dynamics.
0: Right. And there's no getting through that, right? There's no, no. There, there's no, lev- <laughs> there's no level of domestic production at which you outrun that effect.
2: Right. And even if we had the capacity for that level of domestic production... The oil and gas companies in the U.S. would not give it to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right.
2: That's the key part.
0: <laughs> Much like OPEC, yes. they would fiddle with their production based on prices and, and mm-hmm. profits, right? I mean, that's sort of how they work. Exactly. And say a little bit in, in terms of, you know, this gets at, at some of why sort of fossil fuels are intrinsically volatile. But there are two other pieces. One is say a little bit about um, speculators. I don't think I had really fully understood this until I read your helpful summary.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's important to understand that speculators basically are betting on price changes and making money off of those bets. In the most simple of terms, Mm -hmm. Um, so it makes sense that speculators love volatile prices because there's a lot to bet on. (laughs) Um, And oil and gas or commodity futures market is extremely big and powerful, and um, especially starting in like 2000, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act started to really open the floodgates on this. And it was a direct affront to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which is tasked with keeping a handle on this. And since then, it's been a huge part of how energy prices are determined. Dodd-Frank tried to reel this in some, but the, the great thing about it being an international market is if commodity traders wanna to continue to do business, they can start, private commodity trading desks housed in other places. Mm. Um, And that's exactly what happened after Dodd-Frank. And during the past year, the top three or five of these private commodity trading houses, many of them almost doubled their profits in 2021 during a time when people's energy burdens were as high as they could be when people are tipping into energy insecurity. And they're particularly effective during times of like crisis when energy demand as is at its highest and we talk about the Texas storm example where people's energy bills were at $15,000 you know part of that comes from the energy companies themselves price gouging but another part of that is that these speculators on top of that are taking advantage of these times of desperate
0: need yeah and whatever you might say about energy prices being tied to sort of, you know, foreign events or foreign conflicts or or economic fluctuations in other countries. We can't control that, but at least it's legible. Right. <laughs> Where, whereas once they start being, you know, dependent on speculators, then like they're just vo- volatile with no rhyme or reason, which is even worse. Right?
2: right. Exactly. And speculators can make money if the price is going down or up. That's another thing. <sighs> so... <laughs> It expands the volatility. And I will say, and the other part is that it's vulnerable to climate events. Right. So, the ironic thing about burning fossil fuels, maybe it's not ironic, maybe it's obvious, is that burning fossil fuels is terrible for climate change. In fact, it drives it. And then we have extreme weather events, we have extreme temperatures, and those weather events and those extreme temperatures jeopardize fossil fuel infrastructure, which means that fossil fuel companies are paying to fix pipelines that have frozen or they're limiting their supply for two months while there are, you know, wildfires going on. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that we're just burning our way into our own demise in this,
0: in this (laughs) way. (laughs) Yes. We're exacerbating the natural volatility. Yes. You might say. So as you conclude, and here I'm quoting, effectively managing energy price inflation while retaining a fossil fuel based economy is nearly impossible. And this I think again like seems obvious once you <laughs> like once you say it out loud like <laughs> of course we can't control fluctuations in the prices of international commodities the bulk of which come from other places and are traded on an international market like we are subject to that market and exactly. we have and and there is no recourse there's no secret weapon there's no you know increasing domestic production doesn't get you out of this releasing oil from the you know, the strategic petroleum reserve, like
2: (laughs) the secret space.
0: Yes, we tried that. And, you know, it was like a a blip.
2: The tool that we typically turn to when it comes to managing inflation.
0: Well, I meant to ask about this. I'm so glad you remembered that. Why won't just the conventional response to inflation, which we're seeing play out now is just for the Fed to boost interest rates. Why won't that get at this?
2: Well, I think there's two layers. I think one, that is a very blunt tool that's meant to basically slow down the productive capacity of the entire economy because it's running too hot or we're too, our demand is too high. So it's already a pretty blunt tool. And I would argue that probably it isn't the right tool for the moment period, but it's not able to deal with specific supply chain issues already. We know this, but the fossil fuel supply chain, especially is out of the hand of of our domestic government to deal with because of all of the reasons that I just stated. So it's already the wrong tool for dealing with supply chain blockages. And then supply chain blockages in the fossil fuel markets are even more so out of our reach.
0: Right. So just to sort of put a pin in this part, insofar as your economy is dependent on fossil fuels, you are stuck with a level of volatility that has real macroeconomic effects. Yes. Uh, some of which we're uh, living through now in part. So let's pivot then to uh, my favorite subject, electricity. <laughs> one, <laughs> one of the uh, initial points you make, and this is even sort of in here, we're just sort of bracketing renewables. We're just talking about electricity in general. You make the point that electricity prices historically have been much less volatile for two big reasons. So tell us why, historically, electricity prices have been more stable.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's two main reasons that we point to in this report, acknowledging that the electricity industry is super complicated. (laughs) I'm aware. (laughs) The production and transmission of electricity also beyond the scope of what we can really outline here. But all that said, you know, the first thing is that the electricity grid draws on a variety of sources. So, whereas most cars run on, you know, one type of gasoline that you can buy at a, you know, gas station or your home furnace can be powered by one type of oil or gas, you know, when you use electricity, you're plugging into a grid that is drawing on power generated from a wide variety of sources. And so it has built in these mechanisms to kind of balance the desire for consumers to have electricity whenever they want it and all of these different sources generated in all of these different places. So it's just structurally set up to kind of deal with giving people a lot, you know, drawing on a lot of options, not getting stuck in, you know, dependence on one fuel source.
0: Right. So if coal, for whatever reason, shut up, you can shift to natural gas or, or, or vice versa. Like you can move around what you're drawing on. Yeah in order to keep prices stable. Exactly,
1: yeah. Um, The other big reason that we bring up in the paper is just that the electricity industry is much more regulated than the gasoline industry or utility gas industry. I think part of this is because of the uniqueness of how electricity is generated and transmitted. I mean, I think very early on, as it was being developed into this product for consumers, it was clear that we needed the government to be involved in setting what the prices were going to be because otherwise the cost of entry into the market is so big that you know undoubtedly there was going to be one company locally that kind of had a monopoly
0: right a natural a natural monopoly
1: exactly yeah and so you know this is something that Utilities in general, very early on as they were being developed, were understood to be a natural monopoly. So we needed there to be government regulation to protect consumers and make sure that they had just and reasonable prices and equal access.
0: Yeah. And for all the complaints uh, electricity heads have about (laughs) electricity sector regulation, which are uh, many, (laughs) it has, you know, sort of at the macro level, Kept a certain parameters on the whole thing, kept a certain degree of stability around the whole thing.
1: Absolutely. I mean, our electricity sector today, it's not running exclusively on renewables like, you know, we argue in, in the report it should be. You know, it is drawing 60% of power generated through uh, fossil fuels. And yet, even given that, you look at volatility, you know, the average price change in electricity compared to utility gas or gasoline over time. And the prices go up and down far less. And, um, you know, they also, yeah, they don't swing as widely or as often.
0: Yeah, it's a very striking graph in the report, if listeners want to go track it down, showing the volatility of oil versus gas versus electricity. And electricity looks practically like a straight line relative to <laughs> relative to the other two, which, you know, fly up and down uh, all, all over the place. Yeah. So electricity manages to stay relatively stable, even drawing on fossil fuels, which, as we've discussed, are volatile. It, it has this sort of effect of suppressing that vol- volatility and, and, and creating stability. So sort of the next piece of the argument is that even beyond that, sun and wind, solar and wind power specifically are less volatile. So explain a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, Chris really got into kind of the nitty gritty of, you know, the extraction and the conflict around pulling fossil fuels out of the earth and, you know, producing energy sources with them. But wind and solar look almost the opposite to that. You know, they're commonly available everywhere. Sure, there are some areas, you know, that might have more sun, more wind, but we're not dealing with You know, geopolitical situation where there's a handful of countries that have access to this resource that the rest of the world relies on. Now, of course, we know there's been a lot of discussion about the minerals needed to produce the technology to access the sun and the wind. But, um, you know, we believe it's possible to figure out how to fairly and justly distribute those minerals. We're hopeful that we can produce that technology globally and in cooperation. And therefore, once it's set up, you have common unlimited access to solar and wind. So the thing about the fossil fuel industry is that there's this fuel that constantly needs to be extracted and transported all over the world. And with the sun and wind, You know, once you have the technology to capture it, it's just commonly available. You don't have to be transporting it around the globe. And free. (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
0: I want to dwell just for a second on this supply chain question because... You know, this is a, a, a common argument made on behalf of sun and wind. There's no fuel costs. It's all raining down on us for free. You don't have to dig it up. And so once you build the technology, it's a the costs are all technology, not fuel. And so once you build the technology to harvest it, you have basically an eternal, <laughs> reliable uh, source of, of free fuel. But there are... Supply chain issues around the technology. So, as you say, there are, are minerals and metals involved in terms of the sort of chips involved. You know, China has almost all the rare mineral processing. So, in terms of the supply chains for getting that technology, there are currently at least geographical concentrations. There are sort of players that are sitting in a similarly sort of catbird seat as people who are sitting on top of oil and gas. But as you say, that's a solvable problem, (laughs) (laughs) right? The, The fossil fuel volatility is not solvable. Supply chain volatility is, in theory, solvable, right? Like we've built diverse international supply chains for lots of things in the past and could do so again with this.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the dependence on fossil fuels sets you up to have a permanent need to be negotiating global production and distribution
0: right
1: whereas with renewables there's an upfront investment i think that there's a lot of government and international coordination that needs to p- take place but it's not to the same you know degree that we have with the fossil fuel industry
0: Right, more like a a constricted passage that we're trying to get through, but there is an other side.
1: Right, exactly. There's no other side with fossil fuels. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, you know, worth mentioning uh, because we mentioned it about fossil fuels is that insofar as you can prevent climate change, right? Which uh, which uh, sun and wind do, you prevent more volatility in your in your supply chains. In that sense, too, those are, those are both, I guess, long-term effects, but worth noting. And also another in terms of mirror, like you, you talked about how oil price spikes precede recessions because of this, you know, energy is not something you can choose not to buy. So, so everybody's stuck with the price rises, but you have sort of the mirror effect with renewables in that they are constantly reducing household energy expenditures, which free up more money to spend on other things, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we don't have the best, we have a lot of historical data when it comes to fossil fuels, both the production and on the consumer end. We have a lot less of that with renewables, but there are a lot of studies that other people have done that we highlight here, really looking at what does it cost to produce renewables now? What's the impact on it on your electricity bill today? You know, really trying to parse those details out. Mm-hmm. And again and again, we see that renewables are trending downward in terms of the cost of producing them. So that is something, there's a long-term trend in them going down, whereas with natural gas, we see it trending up. Um, So that's something that can be passed on to consumers.
0: Right, and so I wonder if um, you think, and this is, I guess, somewhat speculative, but as we become more of a renewables-based economy, do you think that will reduce the number of recessions? I mean, do you think that will have the effect of mitigating some recessions?
1: I think that there's a lot of potential there. I mean, I think that with the recessions we've seen now that have been preceded by oil price spikes, a lot of that has to do with it being produced elsewhere. And so prices go up and we're paying for gas That is being captured by producers abroad. But the renewable energy landscape is its domestic production, you know? So everyone can produce it technically, some countries more than others, some will have, you know, an easier time ramping up, you know, the United States, obviously one of them. But the idea here is that it's something that doesn't have to be transported because it's commonly available everywhere. And so It's going to be domestically produced largely, which means that even if there is a price increase, the producers of it are getting that price here in this economy.
0: Right. It's it's still in the economy.
1: So it has less of a kind of domino effect in the sense that it's not just a bunch of money getting sucked out of the U.S. economy to oil producers abroad, but it might be getting sucked out of consumers' pockets into their local energy production companies, but those companies, the people that work there and own the business also live in the United States and they'll be putting that money back into the economy here.
0: Right, right. You're having money circulating the economy, whereas every one of these price spikes of fossil fuels, and I just don't know that people really sort of fully have internalized this, but every single price spike in fossil fuels just has the effect of draining shitloads of money out of the u.s economy and might as well be lighting it on fire right these are just rents yeah we're paying we're not getting more for our money we're just getting the same the same thing for our money so it's just like being drained of blood
1: i think the other thing that comes into this is like you know chris was talking about the the speculation kind of betting on prices going up and down Mm -hmm. renewable prices electricity prices are much more stable and so you can like plan your life around that, you know, and you can't have like, oh, the price of gasoline went up. We don't know what, we don't know why we don't have any control over it. Like there's a lot less of that dynamic at play. Um, So when you have stable energy prices, it's something that you can plan for. Um, It's not something that's going to catch you off guard and then you can't pay your rent. Uh, You can have long-term contracts. Consumers can have that. There can be much more, you know, education and awareness about what to expect.
2: Right. And we do argue also that for those in our economy that are the closest to being energy insecure or who are lower income, and we found more so black and Latinx, Mm -hmm. the volatility from fossil fuels can really put you over the edge. Mm -hmm. And you can't plan for that. And so we say that this transition could also have the potential to be an improvement in, in energy equity, at least. Obviously, we make some stipulations about how the policy design would have to make sure that those consumers had access to renewables. But you know, if we do this in a public investment-led way, if we move away from tax credits and more towards subsidies if we make sure that renters who don't have control over what their landlord does in their building for example are able to have access to renewables then this sort of price stability will have an even greater impact on those who spend the majority of their household budget on energy not the majority of their whole budget but who spend more so than other groups of consumers
0: so you you can enhance the equity effects but i think you know it's it's worth i think uh emphasizing what you what you said at the beginning which is Insofar as vulnerable populations suffer more from price volatility, Mm -hmm. they will disproportionately benefit from price stability, right? So there's a sort of inherently – there's an inherent equity effect in all this in shifting from volatile to non volatile sources of energy. You're sort of – you're going to have a large equity effect, you know, even bracketing everything else. Right. So let's then talk about what to – do with with (laughs) with these insights so the conventional wisdom is that inflation comes from overheated demand running out ahead of supply and thus that government spending like the initial uh recovery bill that biden and congress passed insofar as it accelerates consumer demand is just going to exacerbate inflation. Sort of the conventional wisdom is that Biden and Democrats are sort of partially responsible for this because of the big spending they did when they first came in. And you know, I think uh Jeff Bezos sort of <laughs> expressed expressed the conventional wisdom the other day when he said that Manchin saved the Democrats from themselves by preventing them from spending even more. Oh. He literally used the phrase, mansion saved them from themselves. Oh I, it wow. haunts me. <laughs> he,
2: cannot, he cannot pivot into being a pundit now. I cannot I take that.
0: <laughs> Can just one billionaire not? Just don't.
2: Yeah. Oh, God.
0: So, But the conventionalism is that in times of inflation, the proper government response is austerity to spend less until supply catches up with demand. Right. But... To operationalize what y'all are saying would require spending a bunch of government money, like accelerating the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. You know, you can just sit back and wait for the market to do it, but it, if you want it to happen uh, in, in time to have the effects we want, short-term effects, that is going to require a big new public spending. So how do we reconcile this intuition that public spending will drive inflation Mm -hmm. with this counterintuition that the energy transition will suppress inflation?
2: Well, I think you picked up on one of the main goals of this paper. This is one of the issues that we're really trying to confront, which is that climate scientists, climate activists, so many people have been calling for a big public investment in this transition. And are being sort of bombarded with inflation hawkery, saying that we can't afford it right now; it'll drive us over the edge. I mean, I think conventional wisdom is misapplied in this current moment for a few reasons. I think we've already mentioned that the inflation that we're dealing with is coming from several supply chains, and as we said, you know, our tools for dealing with that type of inflation instead of overall overheating inflation are different. Mm-hmm. But two, it's, it's not just government spending all inflationary. I think you have to really understand what you're spending your money on. And that's the big argument of this paper is that if you spend your money on building infrastructure that will stabilize energy prices, which, as we can see, are a huge driver of the inflation we're seeing right now, then you are actually eliminating a major source of inflation and the amount of spending that we do in the time period that it would require will be much shorter than the amount of time that we've actually been dealing with fossil fuel driven inflation and fossil fuel driven volatility. So <laughs> I think our argument is, of course, it's worth it. And the stabilizing effects of switching to renewables will be able to, I don't even want to say offset because I, I don't want to co-sign the idea that this will lead to additional inflation. <laughs>
0: So, A, we have the stabilizing effect of, of moving off fossil fuels onto renewables. But you don't even think that government spending equals more inflation is true to begin with?
2: I'm saying in this current context, I don't know that, that's the, that the conventional wisdom is properly applied to the context we're in right now. There's a lot of debate over whether or not we are truly overheating or if we're really just dealing with some supply chain blockages that come from recovering from the pandemic.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, if you're studying kind of what's driving inflation, a lot of economists are in agreement that right now the inflation we're experiencing is much more on the supply side. Mm -hmm. um, And therefore, we don't see signs of overheating in the economy.
0: Right. And so it makes sense that spending on the supply side would ease that, right? I mean that it, it follow that that spending on the on the supply side would ease rather than exacerbate that.
2: Yeah, I think you could think of a like a clean energy spending bill as a supply smoothing policy in our energy supply chain.
0: This is all I mean, this is all makes uh, intuitive sense, but do we have It's one thing to have an intuition and it's another thing to have some numbers in your back pocket. So do we, I'm just wondering how well we're able to model these kind of things. And I wonder to what extent is sort of some of the conventional wisdom that you guys are disputing kind of embedded in the models. Do you know what I mean? So like modeling itself is misleading us. Like, Do you feel like confident enough to be throwing numbers around to policymakers if they ask like, how much would this ease inflation? Do you know?
1: Well, one of the studies that we highlight in this paper, this is not our own modeling, but um, looked at what a rapid transition to renewable energy production would look like on overall costs to consumers, not a change in the rate of inflation. And they found that a rapid transition to wind and solar today, you know, along with the technological advancements in subsequent years and you know, the economies of scale of really bringing that online would save consumers about $2 trillion a year on the price of energy.
0: Mm-hmm. That seems like a large number.
1: So that's not really about inflation per se, it's really just what are people paying? But I think it drives home the point that you make this investment now, we have to make this investment now. It is a government-led investment it is totally different than the idea of just like throwing dollar bills out into, <laughs> out into the world to get spent in different ways. This is a very like coordinated, planned, you know, utility grade investment, switching to solar, sw- switching to wind, building out the EV charging infrastructure, public transportation relying on electricity. All of that kind of a coordinated investment could save, you know, consumers $2 trillion a year.
0: Which they would probably enjoy whether or not there was inflation. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Right.
2: I mean, I would argue also that predicting inflation 10 years from now in a renewable universe is probably not the right way to prove this quantifiably, in my opinion. I think, you know, we're talking about energy inflation, the inflation that we're likely to see over that year, over the next 10 years could come from many different sources. I think Mm. if we wanted to say inflation stemming from energy prices will be reduced. The best way to get at that answer is by displaying stable prices because inflation shows you the change in prices. So I think by talking about the stability of renewables and the stability of energy prices, we're also really getting at the fact that energy inflation, which tracks price volatility from energy will be reduced. I think guaranteeing policymakers that we are going to be in a 2% inflation universe (laughs) if we switch to renewables is probably not the the best way to get there.
0: (laughs) But I mean, insofar as energy uh, volatility has played a big role in inflation in the past, I mean, uh, like a half of something close to half of current inflation. If you could promise to take that chunk off the table, that's not... We can do that. That's not a small thing. To wrap up, I mean, this is... This makes total sense to me looking out in terms of long-term economic strategy. Like it's interesting, it's sort of one example of a of a thing you see a lot in energy discussions around fossil fuels, which is it's only now that alternatives are available that we're able to sort of turn and clearly see what the choice of fossil fuels is doing to us, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> because if right. there were no if there's no alternative to fossil fuels, then fossil fuel price volatility is just a feature of the universe a right, it's, of that, <laughs> right? Yeah. it's just yeah. it's just a background condition which is sort of how we've been treating it as you know like we leave it out of these inflation measures because we've just sort of
2: made our peace <laughs> made our peace with it right
0: like accepted like this is how it is we're stuck on this freaking roller coaster and you know we have no control over it oh well let's bracket that and look at everything else right but now that fossil fuels are increasingly a choice we can see, oh, like, wow, that has really sucked to be (laughs) stuck on that roller coaster for decades. With
2: no seatbelt.
0: That's been unpleasant. Yeah. Let's let's get off that. So so, anyway, long-term, like strategically long-term, this makes all the sense in the world to me. But of course, there's strategic long-term and then there's like, you know, the (laughs) midterms. So I wonder whether you think that some bold move. I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that a big public spending program on renewable energy would have effects fast enough to materially affect current politics? Or is this kind of a mid and long-term thing we're talking about?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of ways to think about that. I mean, on some level... Nothing that happens with managing inflation today is going to overnight change price volatility between now and the midterms. But what we do have is a really active climate movement that's been demanding change Mm -hmm. because we absolutely need it. And they're not getting action and they're being told it's because there's inflation in the economy. And it's our job, it's our point with this paper to arm activists with the information they need to push past that argument. Because I think one of the ways that we really can affect the political climate is to see action on this issue in particular, which is so popular. Right. Want to see Change. Mm-hmm. We have a plan. We we're organized. We know what we need. We know how to get there. And inflation is not the excuse to delay it. It is the reason to act now. Absolutely. And I think politically,
2: progressives need to show that we're gonna we're gonna do the thing. You know. And I think
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's not typically been our strong. Suit. I'm
2: hopeful that now would be a good time. <laughs> and I think. I don't think there should be any tabling this for a little bit later or after the midterms for the sake of political wins, because I think that might actually be harmful. I think pushing on climate investment as soon as possible is probably a political
1: good also. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I just wonder, you know, like the case as you lay it out makes sense, but I wonder about, you know, the Democrats' ability to to sell it Mm -hmm. or to tell that story in a way that is meaningful to the public, especially with one of their most prominent members out spewing the dumbest of conventional wisdom on this subject.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They might have a hard time doing what they need to do, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, stop fighting for it.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, And so it goes. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on. And like I said, this is, uh, you know, this is like, On some level, I feel like I knew this on some vague level, but it's so nice to just have it put out. And like to me, this is, I just think, one of the great underutilized arguments Mm -hmm. in favor of the energy transition, which is just that being tied to fossil fuels... Sucks. It's unpleasant. It's bad.
2: We made your hunch citable. Yes, a citable
0: hunch. This is this is this is why I'm in the business: is to have my (laughs) my priors reinforced by experts. Uh, All right. Well, so thanks you. Thanks for uh, doing the report, and thanks for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks
2: so much. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.